Dr. David Seifert of Shelter Cove Community Church and Growing Through God's Word. He's going to be bringing us a message, Worthiness Among the Saints. Would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Seifert? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And uh, this is one exciting passage. His worthiness among the saints. As we come to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, which we're going to cover in this section, the scene now shifts from earth to heaven. I remind you, last night it was the words of Jesus to us, the believers, during this time period, the age of the church. And what's wrong with our hearts? What's wrong with our churches? What does He want us to change? Uh, repentance. Uh, turn around. But now suddenly, when we come to chapter 4, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And so shifting from earth and heaven is going to take place frequently in the book of Revelation. And that's kind of neat, but you have to have your mind. You have to understand, okay, we're back on earth. Now we're in heaven. Now we're, you know, and back and forth it goes. But this shift brings us to the third and final great section of the book. You say it's the third and final? Uh-huh. Starts in chapter 4? Uh-huh. I'll tell you why. Turn back again to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. This is absolutely a key. This is the outline that God gave us to understand this climactic book of Scripture. And if you look at it, it says, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. That's the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of our Lord. Write the things you have seen and the things which are. That's the present church age, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Okay, now, this is why you're here. This is what you're interested in. Write the things which will take place after this. And so, uh, after God's plan for the church, it refers to the events still future. The tribulation period as well as what follows. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And we've got a call Worthiness among the saints is our title, and it begins with worship. Worship around the throne. The chapter introduces us to the major activity in heaven. Worship. The word throne, in fact, I've got it underlined in my Bible. We're going to read it in just a moment. But I want you to just to look at chapter 4 with your eyes, and you'll see the word throne repeated, repeated, Repeated. The word appears about 58 times in the New Testament, 43 of which are in the book of Revelation, and you wouldn't believe it, 14 in the Greek. You probably won't find that amount in your English Bible. Maybe there'll be a 12 or 13, but actually 14 times in chapter 4, throne, 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 throne. So it's worship around the throne. And in the next two chapters, we're going to learn some of what it means to give God the glory and honor that He deserves. Right now, church, we're to focus on witnessing and serving, working for Christ. And of course, we don't have enough of an emphasis on worshiping. But the throne of God in heaven is a little bit like the North Star. We need to fix our hearts on what's happening around this dramatic throne. 
I love Hebrews 4.16 that says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need and to find mercy. Isn't that good to know that the throne emanates grace to people like you and I who desperately need it? Well, let's look at the scene that is unfolded in heaven. We're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 4. Follow along, please, in your Bibles. After these things, John writes, he said, I looked, and behold, so he's seeing this, isn't he? I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. See, what was that song we just sung when the roll is called up? The trumpet of the Lord shall sound. Don't miss that. A voice was like a trumpet. I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. I immediately, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, an appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. Are you imagining this in your mind? And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, whatever version you have, read it aloud with me, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created, and all God's people said, Amen. Okay, the scene that's unfolded in heaven. And uh, the Bible says that I looked and there was a door standing. Now, there are three doors in Revelation 3 and, and 4. In Revelation 3, the door to faithful believers in Philadelphia is an open door for evangelism and gospel ministry. That's a door that's open to this church, to you as individuals. Someday that door is going to be closed. No more evangelism. No more winning people to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 20, we have another door to the lukewarm, compromising Christians and congregations of the last days. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, a door of repentance and an invitation once again to come and to have intimate fellowship, to allow Him to control your life. But you, my friend, you have to open 
that door, the handles on the inside. We come to chapter 4, verse 1, and John says, Behold, I, I see a door standing open in heaven, a door that leads to heaven's throne room. You know, the door of the gospel leads us to the door of repentance and fellowship, which then opens the door to heaven for us. Amen? You know, the door is literally having been opened. This is not a door you can open. This is the door that God opens. After these things I saw, behold, a door standing open. The first sound that John heard was like a trumpet speaking with him. Now, the normal order for all people is to live and die, and then everyone is going to be bodily resurrected again. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches. However, there's one great exception to this rule. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, the great resurrection chapter. Look with me at verse 51. Because there's a lot of mysterious things when we come to Revelation. A lot of mysteries in the Bible that then are unveiled and unfolded for us. And this is a great one right here. Here's the mystery. What is the mystery? Behold, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. I tell you a mystery. Alright, what is it? Something that's hidden, that is not yet revealed. And here's what Paul does. He pulls the stage curtain. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die, beloved. No, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last what? Trumpet. For the trumpet will sound <clears throat> and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And, like First Thessalonians 4 says, we shall be changed. Not all Christians <clears throat> of all ages will experience physical death. Now, friend, if that doesn't get your attention, nothing will. Like Enoch, like Elijah of the Old Testament, many of you may very well experience this mystery. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, wow. You may never know what it is to meet the grim reaper. Amen. What a hope. When will this happen? The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, Paul writes. Please notice that all believers at the time of the rapture will escape physical death, not just a few, not just some, but think of it. In a flash, every living believer on earth will be gone. Suddenly, a great blast of a trumpet. Only unbelievers now are left populating the earth. Of course, a number of them are going to turn to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17 says, We shall be caught up. And we get uh, the word rapture, the Greek verb harpazo, to seize, to lift up, to take out faster than an eye, faster than an unbeliever can perceive. One day the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and again with the trumpet of God, like John heard, we will hear. What a day that's going to be. Look with me at the place where the throne is located, back to chapter 4. John says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. How did John see these things? I mean, did he really see this? The Bible says, really, he became in spirit. As David mentioned last night in our first session, there's no definite article in the Greek. 
So immediately I was in spirit. He was translated in space and time to heaven. And the first thing that he sees is this throne. And in a sense, if you think about it, John was called out of his body. Body, soul, spirit. In spirit. So he was called up and out. Do you know what the word church means? Ekklesia. Out of to be called. To be called out. Called out once. That's what we are. And so now John arrives at the destination to which the church is called. Where is that? Before the throne of God. Wow. Verse 1 says, I will show you things which must take place after this. What John saw is history. Well, it's pre-recorded history. It hasn't happened yet for you and I and for this earth, but friend, it must happen. Do you see that verse in your Bible? And from here on through the book of Revelation, everything revolves around the throne of God and the one who sits on it. And the impact of this throne... Fourteen times in this chapter, it's overwhelming. God is sovereign. He's the undisputed ruler. He's in charge. And there is coming a day when the whole world will know that God is on the throne. Now, don't miss the fact. From here on in Revelation, the church, which occupied center stage through the opening chapters, never mentioned again until the final chapter. I remind you again, up to chapter 4, there's 19 references to the church. But never again is the church mentioned in this world. In fact, during the tribulation period, as you will see, the church is in heaven. In fact, I want to show that to you this morning. Now, when you get to Revelation 19 and the Lord comes back, we see the bride prepared for the wedding. In verse 14 of chapter 19, we see her marching as an army. But here's the mystery. She's coming back with Christ. How did the church get up there to come back with Christ? How did that happen? I read the story of a woman who walked into a haagen ice cream store in Kansas City. And after she made her selection and bought her ice cream cone, she turned and suddenly found herself standing face to face with Paul Newman. He smiled and said hello to her. (laughs) She froze, unable to speak. The woman finally managed to pay for her ice cream cone. She left the store with her heart pounding and feeling embarrassed, you know, unable to say anything to Mr. Newman. And after she gained her composure, she realized she didn't have her ice cream cone. So she went back to the haagen store. As she opened the door, Paul Newman was walking out, and he asked her, were you looking for your ice cream cone? Still unable to speak, she simply mm, nodded her head yes. He smiled at her, and he said, I happen to notice that you put your cone in your purse with your change. <laughs> oh, my friend, well, as exciting as it was for that woman to meet Paul Newman, I want to tell you, That's nothing when you and I are going to be standing before the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in the throne of God in heaven. Now you just think about that. (laughs) You'll forget more than your ice cream. What a day. Well, let's look at the picture of who's sitting on that throne because this is the issue. In verse 3, the Bible simply says, And he who sat there, 
was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. John is not able to adequately describe. We cannot grasp the real appearance of Almighty God, so he's forced to use comparisons. The supreme ruler, God the Father, described in terms of two precious stones, the jasper, crystal clear, like a diamond, portraying, of course, the purity of God's holiness. And yet there's another stone, the sardius stone. That's blood red like a carnelian, like a ruby, reflecting the justice of God's wrath. So you see these two stones, the purity of a diamond, the blood red. The Bible says in Psalm 89, 13, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your faith. Both stones point to none other than the Lord Jesus, who was absolutely pure, the one who shed his precious blood for our sins by satisfying God's wrath. And as a part of the majesty of the scene, John also sees a beautiful rainbow of emerald green. Now, my wife's favorite color is blue. She's a blue person. How many are blue people? We've got some blues here. Is there anybody that's a green like I am? Oh, well, God made a lot of green and he made a lot of blue, didn't he? I won't ask you about the rest of you, okay? But uh, I'm a green guy. And so he sees this beautiful rainbow of emerald green. It says there was a rainbow around the throne. You've never seen a rainbow like this. Well, you say I've never seen an all green one. That's true. But you've never seen a rainbow that is complete and circular, have you? No. When I was over in Boracay in the Philippines, I went out one morning and there was this gorgeous rainbow after the storm. Touched on that island and way over there and out over the ocean. But that's all the farther it went. Right there. But this is a 360 degree rainbow. It's around the throne in the Bible. The rainbow stands as a testimony, doesn't it? That God will always be faithful to His promises. Reminds us of His grace and mercy. How God safely delivered His people in the ark of Noah. Remember? That's the basis of the rainbow. And that's why Revelation is always tied to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so here, I believe he's picturing again his promise to us as believers in the safe arrival of believers, not in the ark, but into heaven before God's judgment falls on planet earth, just as he promised. Now let's talk about the people who were surrounding this throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head. Who in the world are these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones? Well, some say they must be angels. Uh, the word is presbyteros. You're familiar with that word. What's that sound like? Presbyterian, it's basically the word for elders, never used of angels in Scripture. Only used of men. Elders in the New Testament, the Old Testament, are leaders who always represent spiritually mature leaders. They're supposed to be who represent the people of God. Now, how do we know they're not angels? Turn over in your Bibles to chapter 7. 
Look with me at verse 11. 7-11. That's a good one, isn't it? 7 come 11. No, no, no. 7-11. And all the angels stood around the throne. How many angels were standing around the throne? All. And the elders. And the four living creatures. And fall on their faces before the throne. No, the angels are separate from the elders, aren't they? Do you see that in your Bible? Alright, it's very clear. Now, in First Chronicles 24, all of Israel's priesthood was divided into 24 groups. The number 24 represents the whole. All the priests. So what is this group? Well, come back with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Look with me at verse 6. Look at verse 6. We are promised that God has already made us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He's already made you a king and a priest. The Bible says in Revelation 20, Blessed are those who take part in the first revelation, for they shall rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Amen? Now, I've already asked for Maui, so don't you beat me, okay? But whatever, but whatever God wants to give me, I'm, I'm ready to take that on, hopefully, with His, His great help. But in chapter 1, verse 6... Notice, please, he's made us kings and priests who is God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Wow. You know what? When you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, and we see this great, beautiful city coming down from heaven. John goes into great length describing it. (laughs) That is fantastic. There are 12 gates. Each gate is a single, beautiful, luminous pearl. And on the gate, there's a name. Three on the east, three on the west, three north, three south. The name of each one of the twelve tribes of Israel. But there's also foundations. Twelve foundations. And on the foundations are the twelve names of the apostles. You got 12, and 12 makes how many? Hey, this is a genius group we have today, David. I didn't know if you knew that, but it's a completed group. It's the whole thing. I want you to notice they're clothed in white robes with crowns of gold on their head. Who was promised crowns of gold to be clothed in white and to sit on thrones in heaven? My friend, it's the church. Revelation 2.10, crowns of gold. Revelation 3.5, verse 21, church believers. Never promised to angels. Promised to New Testament believers. Like an Olympian athlete who wins. The crowns tell the stories of victories of our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have some victories? Do you have some great stories where God has led you and you've trusted Him? And look at what He's done and you can tell those stories Well, some of us have forgotten those stories, but God's going to bring them back. The proclamation that comes from the throne, look with me in verse 5, from the throne proceeds lightning and thundering and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Well, North Carolina right now, one of my favorite places. Uh, Went back there to play golf several years, uh, stayed with some friends, uh, and uh, on Wood Lake, just about 25 minutes uh, away from one of the golf meccas, 
of the world. And uh, one of the things I'll never forget is a thunder and lightning storm. And, and I'm from Ohio, but I've been out here in California for many, many years. And so they had this screened-in porch, you know, the no and the little black bugs and all of that in North Carolina. God bless them. Anyway, we were sitting out on that porch, and you could hear the rumblings of the storm. And it got dark. And then you could see the lightning. But I noticed, first of all, the, the little birds, they stopped chirping. And there was a silence. It was amazing. So I'm just sitting out there. Everybody else is gone. And I'm just sitting in this screen in porch, just having a great time with the Lord. No birds. Where'd they go? Where'd the birds go in a storm? Smart enough to take cover. Well, there's a whole lot of people in North Carolina right now that are trying to take cover. If you've been following this particular storm, they say it's historical. They can't recall. They've just called for 300,000 people in New York, most of whom who don't have a car, to get out of the city. I mean, this is unbelievable. Well, the thunder and lightning, and so we see it here. You know, seven times in the book of Revelation, you're going to see and hear flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. These are storm signals, beloved. And God has prepared His throne. Judgment is coming. The storm is coming. And each time, one more element of judgment is going to be added. Technology enables us today to track storms before they strike, giving people time to prepare. And when this storm of judgment arrives, no one is going to be able to hide. No one is going to be able to escape. God's judgment is coming. The train has left the station. The seven spirits of God, the fullness of God, the sea of glass, we are standing on holy ground. That's the idea. Now look at the praise the living creatures give to God, beginning in verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal in the midst of the throne, around the throne, four living creatures. We will read of these living creatures throughout Revelation You say, what in the world are these uh, weird-looking creatures? Well, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, you'll see creatures that are very, very similar to these. And Ezekiel calls them cherubim. Cherub is singular of cherubim. Seraph, singular of seraphim. Cherubim are not little, fat, naked babies with many wings that fly around and shoot people with love arrows. Get that out of your mind. They're spectacular, angelic beings who must be... You know what? Look at them. It says in verse 8, they're full of eyes around and within. They're like mothers. They can see everything everywhere. I mean, look at that. As an honor guard around heaven's throne, they continually declare the greatness of God. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They give praise to His holiness, His power, His eternal nature. God's goodness and greatness demands their praise. And whenever the living creatures give that, guess what the elders do? Look at it. Verse 10. The elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. Wow. A 
cherubim lead, the angel, the elders take their cue. Elders are on the thrones, but when they see the angels praising God, they know there's only one place they can be on their face. You ever get down on your face, just, I mean, flat out before God? You probably ought to do that now and get used to it. I think we're going to be there a number of times in heaven, don't you? You know, these elders representing, I believe, the church, they realize that any reward they have is because of Him and His glory. They take the crowns that were rewarded for faithful service and notice what they do. They cast their crowns before the throne. Anybody enjoy that uh, contemporary gospel group, Casting Crowns? Guess where that came from? Right here, Casting Crowns. I like that. We owe our existence and our lives to God. And so when we accompany our Redeemer back to this earth, Revelation 19.12 says that on His head are many crowns. Isn't that interesting? Friend, who's sitting on your throne? Who is sitting on your throne? You see, true, true worship does something to you. Your focus shifts and you begin to see God as the center of Everything. He's the center of your work. He's the center of your family. He, he's the center of your hope and your future. Your ego is no longer center. You stop living for yourself. You begin living for Him and things you never saw before. You understand it. It makes you sing. Only you, O oh Lord, are worthy. Worship can make a great difference in your personal life. Come with me to chapter 5, please. John says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Let's look at the scroll that is now unrolled in heaven. Behind the scenes in heaven, there's a secret unveiling of the plans that God has for bringing world history to a grand finale. And this is the secret of the seven-sealed scroll. Look at the content that it represents. This is not a book. It is a scroll, a rolled-up paper of parchment, seven seals on the outside. Uh, what does a book represent, uh, this scroll? Why is it sealed? Why is it written on the front and on the back? Who can be found to open it? What's required in order to open this scroll? Lots of questions. But with careful study, you'll find the answers right here. The scroll could not be read because it was rolled up and sealed. Very similar to a Roman will, seven seals on it. And John could see the writing on both sides of the scroll, and that meaning simply that it was complete, it was final, nothing more could be added. It, it's a done deal. It's a very special scroll that includes the will of Almighty God in His final settlement, settlement of the affairs of this universe. You know, when a Jewish family was required to forfeit its land, perhaps because of poverty, forfeit its possessions because of some distress, the property could not be taken from them permanently. Do you know why? The basis of that law in Israel is that the earth and all it, all it is really belongs to the Lord. And so it's interesting to see that. Their losses, a Jewish family, would be listed on the inside of a scroll. It would be sealed seven times. 
The conditions necessary to purchase back the land would be written on the outside. And when a qualified buyer, we call them a redeemer, could be found to meet the requirements, the one to whom the property had been forfeited was obligated to return the property to the original owner. This is the background. And so now we come to the challenge. The challenge to find someone worthy. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Imagine this mighty angel. He's not going to be talking like this. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the emphasis is not on the content, but it's on the seals and the one who is worthy to take it. It's a similar question that we ask in every election year. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to be asking, hopefully, who is willing, but we're going to be asking who is worthy. Oh, may God help us. But, you know, regardless of who God puts up, it's only temporary. Amen? Who among us is capable of leading to find solutions for the problems of this world that we're facing? Who's wise enough? Who's moral enough? Who's worthy? The problem is, (laughs) there's no one qualified in any place in the universe to open this scroll or even to look at it. Verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on earth under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. It was hopeless. A search was made in every conceivable place in the universe. No one was qualified. No one had the ability. No one had the authority. And John says in verse 4, So I began to weep greatly. The NIV says, I wept and wept. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And John's crying demonstrates the depth of the dilemma and he is feeling it. You know, we've sought answers to our problems, beloved, and we've been searching in all the wrong places. We put our trust in human governments. Amazing how many Christians do that every few years. And philosophies in wealth and pleasure But the tears of our sorrows are still flowing, aren't they? Now the champion who alone is able. And suddenly John learns that the problem is already solved. He's commanded to stop his weeping because his eyes are turned to the only one who can turn our tears of sorrow into tears of joy. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Beloved, 24 titles in chapters 1 through 3 have already been used to describe our Lord and Savior. 24 titles in the first three chapters. Here's two more. What's unique about these two? They're Jewish titles. They're Jewish titles, and I believe there's significance here because history now is going to move, as it moves forward, it's going to focus back on Israel. That's why you need to get that book and understand what God's plan is for Israel. Well, we find out that he's the lion of Judah, this one. Like Genesis 49 predicts, the scepter, the kingly scepter, the right, the rule, the authority will never depart from the tribe of Judah. The lion, of course, is the king of beasts and Judah is the royal tribe which God has chosen from which the Messiah would come. And and so he did. He's also the line of David, the root of David, one of the great titles that 
many used in writing of Jesus was that he was the son of David, the son of David. And both titles refer to Old Testament prophecies that predict one from the tribe of Judah, one from the family of David who would at last rule on this earth. Both titles refer to the king of the Jews. The very title which Pilate inscribed on that cross about Jesus. But when John turns to see, expecting to see the conquering lion of Judah, instead, verse 6, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lion? No. What, church? A lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain. The wounds were still there, having seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits sent out into all the earth. Yes, He is the Lamb of God. John says, Behold, the the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We have been redeemed, not with gold, not with silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, Peter says. Mentioned 190 times in the Bible. Jesus is called a lamb 29 times in Revelation. Isn't that interesting? The theme of the lamb is extremely important. presents the person, the work of Jesus Christ. The word arneos in the Greek, it means a little pet lamb. It expresses God's love for His Son. And of course, what it costs God to give Him for you and for me. You know, in the Old Testament, the question is, Genesis 22, where's the lamb? John the Baptist answered that question when he introduced Jesus. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the earth. No wonder the choirs in heaven sing right now, worthy is the lamb. But notice the lamb is not dead. He's not on a cross. He's standing, resurrected, victorious, but he still has the wounds of sacrifice on him. That old hymn, blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote, I shall know him, I shall know him. As redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. Someone said the one man-made thing that's going to be in heaven. The lion speaks of his majesty. The lamb speaks of his meekness. As lion, he is sovereign. As lamb, he is savior. As lion, he is judge. As lamb, he is judged for you and for me. I notice he's omnipotent, seven horns, all-powerful. He has seven eyes, the perfect, complete, full number. He's omniscient, knows it all. Seven spirits. He comes, he takes the scroll. The title deed of earth is in its rightful hand. And judgment and power over the earth are committed to none other than the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now watch the confession of worship by those in heaven. Beginning in verse 7, Then He came and took the scroll out of the right hand who sat on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. When the Lamb takes the scroll, the weeping ends and the praising begins. Hallelujah. And the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Chapter 5, verse 8, they fell down. Chapter 5, verse 14, they fell down. And when Jesus comes back, chapter 19, verse 4, the elders again, the church, they fall down. As you look at that, 
take a moment. It says in verse 8 that each having a harp. Did you see that? Wow. <laughs> I like that. Are you glad that John said each having a harp? Notice he didn't say everyone has a harp except a few. You know, maybe you were one of those people that somehow got in the wrong line when God was handing out musical talent. But friend, you're not going to miss it here. You're going to be able to sing and play and worship to your heart's content. What a day that's going to be. Man, I'll tell you, heaven's going to give us a greater opportunity to worship than ever before. What have you done with your title deed? Ruthie and I were in the home of a couple. We've started uh, over 200 churches in the Ukraine with the support of our local church and And this man uh, really uh, was funding church plants in the Ukraine in connection with a biblical seminary over there at the tune of five grand a month. And of course, the economy hit. And, you know, when the tide goes out, all the boats go down, don't they? And it broke his heart, but he had to stop. I noticed one time I passed out title deeds to everybody. It's a title deed. It's a title deed to your life. As on right here, your, your family, your children, your grandchildren, your house, your cars, your boat, everything that you have. And on the basis of Scripture, I challenge them to deed everything over to its rightful owner so that you can properly take your place as just a manager. Amen? He did that. And after telling me of some of his incredible losses, he walked me into his study and he showed me on his wall the title deed that was framed. And he said, Pastor David, I'm so glad that you challenged us to do this because I put it on my wall and Manny said uh, we've lost so much but you know what I look at that and I realize it's not mine I just got to do the best I can with what belongs to God what have you done with your title deed my friend inside the scroll is a story of how we lost our inheritance but on the outside of the terms of its redemption, there's a day when our Lord Jesus Christ redeems the whole purchased possession. And the Bible says they sang a new song. Now, quickly, let's look at the song that is unleashed in heaven. What a song this is. I mean, it's like a passionate song. They sang a new song. Are you with me? Chapter 5, verse 9. What's the lyrics? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. What causes the passion that we hear in this song? It's a new kind of a song, new in quality, not time. It's like this particular song has never existed before. It's a song the world has never heard before, but someday they will. Isaiah says that he's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Let me tell you why. It's because of the preeminence of the Lamb. This is why. A song focused on the Lord because of our redemption. The human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence, wonderful counselor, 
Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's glorious, yet He's so humble. Perfect justice, yet merciful. Good, yet patiently endures evil. And we admire Him. It's a song because the people are redeemed by His blood. For you were slain, the song says, and have, you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The purchase price is the death and blood of Christ. This is the reason for the worship in heaven, my friend. Watch this carefully. It is the death of Jesus. It's not His teaching, great as it was. It's, it's not His life of compassion, great as it was. It's not His miraculous wonders. It's not His power to walk on water, but the shedding of His blood for sinners of every age is the, the, the passion behind this song. Today there are many churches that are pushing the delete button when it comes to their hymns or their songs and it talks about the blood of Christ. I like what old J. Vernon McGee said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I think. <clears throat> he said, perhaps, that's why the Lord isn't going to embarrass them by taking them into heaven because they'd have to sing about the blood up there. Now, you just think about that, my friend. Now, look at the position that is given to us in the future. By the way, let's go back just a moment. There's a big textual issue here, and I want to just deal with it very quickly. Verse 9. Who's singing the song? Who is singing the song? Well, we know it's the 24 elders, don't we? You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed. Now, is it us? Does anybody have a translation where it says them? Come on, you can confess. You're among friends. My other translation says them. I'm using the New King James, so the King James says us. Is that what many of you have? Are you tracking with me? Okay, out of the 5,000 total manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, fragments in existence, 5,000, there's only 95 that have some part of the book of Revelation. How many of those 95 have this particular section in it of Revelation 5, 24? 24 Greek manuscripts. How many of those read us and how many of those read them? 23 of the 24 read us. Isn't that interesting? The removal of the word us is found in only one, Codex Alexandrinus. That's the only one. When Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century A.D., he had more manuscripts available to him than we know existed. And his translations read us. The Greek translations <clears throat> into other languages, they all read us. Who is it that purchased? Who is it that he purchased, beloved? That's what you've got to think about. Who is it that he redeemed? It is us. It is me. That's who he redeemed. Who was it that was promised to be a kingdom of priests and kings to God? It is us. Who was it that was promised to rule and to reign with Him on the earth? It is us. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Very carefully look at this. 
from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved who? Us. And he washed us from our sins in his own blood. The churches in heaven during the tribulation, no wonder they are singing. Amen? One more time. I want to beat this thing until you won't forget it. Now, I don't have enough time. But I want you to look at verse 9, and I want you to tell me who is the us who are out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Who is the us? It is the church. Five times you'll see that phrase in Revelation. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Friend, only people are redeemed, not angels. Only the church fits this description. This is our Lord's marching order given to the church, by the way. He said, go into all ta'ethne, all the ethnic peoples of the world. And what are we to do, church? What is our focus? You want to measure how we're doing? We're to make disciples. That's what we're to do. He said, I am with you always. That means ta'ethne, every race. That means black and white and brown and red and yellow and every shade of the rainbow. And if you're prejudiced or you grew up with prejudice, my friend, you get over it. You're going to be with every... Imagine we somehow keep our nationality in heaven. People are going to know. The Bible says every tribe, every people, every language, every culture, every nation... They're going to be there. So, my friend, get over it. The position given to us in the future is verse 10. He made us something that we could never be on our own. He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. He opened royalty of God's family to us. He made us priests. He gave us access into the very holy presence of God unheard of in the past. The veil of our sin that separated us has been removed. He's given us victory. His people shall reign on the earth and over themselves. Finally, amen. Victory over sin. Victory over self. Victory, victory, victory. We shall reign on the earth. Notice the praise from all creation in verses 11 to 14. Then I looked and I heard the voice. Of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The greatest number that the Greek could ever imply is here saying with a loud voice. You know, as John watches, all the universe is caught up in the wonder of that sacrificial love. And he hears this great swelling volume of sound. By the way, this is where Handel's closing choruses in his oratorio, The Messiah, came from right here. He closes with one of the most beautiful musical numbers ever written. Worthy is the Lamb. At the end of it, everyone in the chorus joins in and they repeat, Amen. 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 So be it. It's a moving presentation. The elders, the church, they begin it. The angels join in. This special <coughs> cherubim around the throne and the hosts that are too many to count. Look with me. At verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. The 24 elders fell down worshipped Him who lives forever. The Amen signifies truly, so be it. And by the way, this is imperfect tense. It means they kept on saying it like this, church. Come on. Amen. Say it again. Amen. Say it again. Amen. Say it again. Amen. 
for my golfer friend back there in the audience, the most prestigious tournament of the year is the Masters at Augusta. I've never been, but I've watched it for many years. DVR it, you know. It's a very challenging course, but it's incredibly beautiful. The 11th and the 12th and the 13th holes, 11, 12, 13, are so treacherous that they have the nickname of the Amen Corner. (laughs) I'm told that when golfers get there, they kind of hold their breath and they start praying through all those difficult holes. Friend, this is God's, this is heaven's Amen Corner. Never will such music have been heard in the universe. Never will so many voices be lifting such mighty praise. So be it, Lord. Amen. Will you sing heaven's song? You know, everyone in this room, in fact, everyone in this room is going to be involved in this worship, but the question is, in which group are you going to be? Are you going to stand with those who gladly confess the Lordship of Jesus, or will you be with those who reluctantly acknowledge that He's right? They're wrong. Only you can really answer that question. You will confess His Lordship. And so will I. No exceptions. It's not a choice for the future. But it's a choice for today. Today, people are going on business as usual. As the next chapter in our study will show us. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah. Marrying and giving of marriage and all this. They go on their merry way ignoring the storm warning signs of the last days. But one day soon, Jesus is going to take the scroll and my friend, he's going to begin to unroll it. And his divine judgment is going to fall. Just like the rains began to fall in the days of Noah. Beloved, it is going to come. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into heaven. Lord, what a blessing it is to read, to study, to hear the book of Revelation. Thank you once again for the privilege, Lord. Would you minister to each one of our hearts, God? For any that are here that are unsure, they don't have the assurance of their salvation. Pray, Father, that they'd talk to one of us, to the pastor. God, we all have burdens for lost people. We all have a concern for loved ones that are not walking with you. Lord, would you use us in these days? In Jesus' name, amen.